CID Speaker Series podcast. This week, Salima Samji, Director of CID's Build and Stay Capability Program, is interviewing Matt Andrews and Lant Pritchett, co-authors of the newly launched book, Build and Stay Capability, Evidence, Analysis, Action. Matt and Lant are the core faculty behind the CID program, and in their book, they present an analysis of development failures and describe how governments can escape capability traps. I want to start off by asking both of you the question of the PDIA acronym. Why an acronym and why PDIA? <laughs> well, in part because it had to sound silly enough you wouldn't have otherwise thought of it, and B, because if you want to sell something in development, it's got to have an acronym. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, development, it's like the military, right? It's full of acronyms, and if it doesn't have an acronym, it's not something. So interestingly enough, we have a lot of people who say, well, that's kind of what I was doing before, but I could never get my bosses to agree to let me do it until I told them it was PDIA. Then it was OK, <laughs> as long as it had an acronym. So we were very conscious that we needed to have an acronym, an order that would look like something that was legitimate and that people could actually do. And it had to have between three and four letters, because four is too long, two is too short. So we were very constrained, but we sort of struggled for a couple of, it took us like six months of brainstorming to settle on a sufficiently odd but four-letter acronym that we could then launch into the world so that people could be cool by not referring to words, but to an acronym. Matt, you uh, wrote a blog once on yeah. the term PDIA. Did you want to share some your thoughts yeah, so on that? Uh, probably after, after two or three months of uh, PDIA coming out, another blog was created to uh, identify a new name for PDIA <laughs> because a lot of people were saying it's really clunky and boring and just like uh, I remember reading someone said this is exactly what you would expect from Harvard academics uh, and they should, have, they should have hired some uh, communications firm to come up with a better name. Um, and in the private sector, the closest kind of cousins are things called agile, and they're like, that's just much cooler. Uh, and and uh, so I wrote the responsive blog saying, uh, we needed something that was catchy, but also clunky enough that it could never be a best practice, because <laughs> we're kind of saying, don't do best practice. So, you know, it's, uh, it's almost like people can say we're doing PDA, but it's like, it's too clunky to actually make it so cool that it's going to become the next thing. That, uh, that we would then have to write about and say is a problem. Great, thank you. Um, Lance, the term isomorphic mimicry, in the online course, a lot of people really loved it mm. because of what you said earlier. They'd seen it in development, they didn't have a word, now they had a word for it. Could you tell us a little bit about how did you come up with the term and when did you first see it? Well, we didn't invent the term isomorphism, which is a standard in sociology. And I remember the first time I had been working with the World Bank for maybe 10 or 12 years, and I happened to come across this literature of sociological, people who do sociology of organizations, uh, and they were writing about isomorphism. And it was like they had seen into my life and my work and were describing it exactly. I thought, how did they know what I do from day to day? They're describing what it's like to be a World Bank bureaucrat with this term isomorphism. So we picked up isomorphism and added mimicry because I think it goes well with evolutionary. And we wanted to use an ecosystem analogy to make it clear that this was embedded. This was a property not just of 
organisms did this because they were embedded in an ecosystem that rewarded it. So we kind of combined an evolutionary concept of Batesian mimicry and a sociological concept of isomorphism and call it isomorphic mimicry. That way we could show pictures of animals because everybody who's been in the MPID program knows that a lot of your learning is learning various animal metaphors, <laughs> camels and hippos and, and snakes. So isomorphic mimicry was the combination, but it, it, the first time I came across the concept, it was just like, wow, how do they follow me around from day to day and describe so exactly what it's like to work in a large bureaucracy of just constantly projecting up that we're doing something that's kind of best practice from elsewhere other than actually having a contested discussion of what we ought to do. Okay. Thank you. Matt, you wrote the second half of the book, The Practical, How Do You Do PDIA? Could you talk a little bit about the process you used of how did you write those chapters, and in particular, the AAA? In our online course, again, one of the things that people have have said time and time again is that it is the AAA approach that, that has just changed the way they thought. Where they thought there was no change space, now they know that there's something that they can do, they can act. So for those who don't know, so we use lots of uh, acronyms. Here's another one. AAA is essentially a, a diagnostic that you can use to identify uh, the space that you have for change. And it essentially says that in an organization or in a sector, you need to ask, what is your authority to change? What is your ability to change? And what is the acceptance of change? Um, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a variety, one of a number of tools that we have. And all of the tools, I think, are things that uh, uh, draw on many strands of thought. So, you know, John Dewey is someone who I spent a lot of time uh, working with. Uh, uh, Kurt Lewin's work on change was something that I spent a lot of time with. And when I came up with the, the idea of the AAA, it was, it was Lewin thinking about how you, you move from one situation, you break that situation, you move to another one. But it was also kind of probably 10 or 11 other people. And I think that one of the things you see in the book is is oftentimes people read it and they'll say, oh, this is this. And I'll say, yes, plus. <laughs> uh, and it's, it, we, we haven't kind of been um, too picky about being pure. We've uh, essentially kind of stolen ideas from many, many places and put them together and, 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 and then you know, tested them in the real world. Everything that we, we, we do is something that we work with. So the second half of the book is really comes from many conversations that we've had about our experience and then many of my own experiences and then also trying the things out with real people. So in every single case uh, and with every single tool that we introduce, we, can, we have examples of actually using these things in the real world and also how other people use them in the real world and found that they were either useful or not. Um, so, you know, the AAA, for instance, is something that um, when I was in the World Bank, people used to say, we need to understand the context in which you work. And so they started introducing a thing called political economy analysis. And what I always found about political economy analysis was that it was just a really blunted, pretty useless instrument that was trying to do something very, very important. And why I say blunt and useless is that usually we would hire somebody from the outside to come and do an analysis of the political economy of a place, as if you really could see the political economy of a place, right? So you have a consultant who comes and kind of writes this document, and you say, well, you know, is there anything about the political economy that's interesting that people in the political economy allow you to see? I mean, think about politicians. The tools that they use to act are tools that they try to hide because they're trying to get an advantage in their space. 
So by definition, I would say every document that I read that told me about the political economy told me nothing that was interesting about really what was going on. So what you really needed is to pick up on the idea of how do you understand context, and you need something that is really a very simple analytical device that you can use as a heuristic whenever you're working in a place to say, what are the two or three things that matter, and how do I look at the interaction of those things? And um, when I looked across the literature, it seemed that there were a lot of people writing, including people like Mark Moore here, about the importance of the authorizing environment in the public sector, that the way in which authority worked and what it allowed you or didn't allow you to do was really important. Then if you look at uh, a lot of literature on change, it says, well, you know, people need to accept the need for change if you want to move on, so that seems like a fairly basic thing. And then, you know, as someone who comes from a public administration background, I really do appreciate the fact that people need to have the capacity or the basic ability to move. So it seemed that those were three interesting kind of uh, mechanisms or, or um, uh, uh, that, that you could think about in any context and putting them together in a basic Venn diagram to say, think about how they intersect with each other was pretty useful. So, you know, I remember when I first spoke about this with the World Bank and someone put their hand up and they said, but can you measure those three things? <laughs> and can you, can you, can you, can you develop a, a, an empirical um, a, a way of assessing their interaction? And I was like, I think you're just missing the point of what we're talking about. This is a heuristic. It needs to be something you use. And it needs to be something that you use in an ongoing fashion. It's not something you do once in a lifetime. So that's where it came from, and that's where many of the tools, I think, came from. Thank you. Lance, moving to PDIA in practice, you and Michael were recently in Indonesia in January, and both of you have come back giving such incredible stories about what you've seen in terms of PDIA in action. Could you share a little of that example for us? So <clears throat> let me start with an earlier experience, because I lived in Indonesia during the East Asian crisis of 1998 to 2000, and I was working for the World Bank. And one of the things I was doing was help the government of Indonesia fund and implement a large-scale program of distribution of rice to help people mitigate. During the crisis, the price of rice had shut up. It was a staple food, so large-scale distribution of rice. But what was happening was the government had some very bureaucratic procedure where the list of all people who were supposed to receive rice was made, and then they were providing us as the World Bank as a funder a report saying exactly who these rice went to. So we knew early on that that was a complete fiction, right? that the rice was going to many more people than those who were on the list. And it wasn't a completely legitimate spreading of the rice. But So I went and did the typical World Bank thing as I went on what we call a supervision mission. And I went out to a state, and I talked to the government officials, and I said, now these reports, you know, for our purposes, they have to be accurate. They have to say who's getting the rice. Are these really who's getting the rice? Absolutely. We go down a level to a district. We talk to the district level officials. Is this who is getting the rice? Absolutely. We go down to a village, which I, of course, had chosen at random, because had I not chosen at random, it would have been Potemkin for sure. So we show up in this village with like five you know, SUVs and this group of officials was gathered and was trampled down the chain of command. And the poor village chief shows up on his scooter. And we say, you know. Here's the list for your village. It says only these people are getting the rice. You know, is that true? He says, oh, yeah, absolutely. And then I say, really? Because in many villages, they've decided to share the rice more broadly because everybody's been affected by the crisis. 
And he said, oh, yeah, absolutely, that's what we do. <laughs> but, you know those are contradictory. Oh, yeah, if I gave the people only to the people on the list, the rest of the villagers would tear me apart. Why aren't they getting something? I have to share it more widely. Great. It was obvious. We knew this was happening. But I turned to the people that for two hours as we had traveled down to this village had been telling me the rice went to only these people. And I said, certainly you knew this was rice was being shared more widely, and yet you kept telling me that it was going only to these people on the list. Why did you tell me that? And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, well, you're from the World Bank. You've never wanted to know the truth before. <laughs> <laughs> Which revealed something very deep. It was true. We never wanted to know the truth before. We wanted to see the reports that said the rice had gotten to the people that we had funded, and that's the end of our curiosity, right? Um, so Indonesia, in some sense, was a very deeply, totally anti-PDIA place, right? It was a hierarchical, top-down controlled system in which they, everybody fed the machine exactly what it wanted to hear, because nobody ever wanted to hear the truth. That said, I went back. It's now been 16 years. So it's a very changed country. And we heard, we met with a group of people who we had been invited, I thought, to talk about PDA. Instead, it was a whole bunch of people that had been working at their local level in a variety of different things doing PDIA. We had never met them. We had never trained them. They weren't our students. And yet, they would describe one woman in particular was from a, a district where she was working in the health sector. And the health, they had identified maternal mortality as a key health problem that wasn't getting better. They still had a lot of women dying in childbirth. And she described exactly you know, our methods and techniques and how they had gone through the fishbone diagram to identify root causes, how that they had then acted, how they had then traced what the impact of the actions were, how they had then iterated onto something else. And it was just beautiful to sit there from somebody I'd never met, never taught, and hear that partly, to be honest, the legitimating structure of the acronym PDIA had allowed her her own freedom to do what kind of was common sense, but with a little bit of common sense, a little bit of naming techniques that would be useful to her and a little bit of helping her in her own authorizing environment, she was working on a very important problem in a completely unique way that had I given her advice about how to help maternal mortality, I never would have been able to give her advice about the specifics, but by giving her tools and techniques of analysis and a patina of authorization, because Harvard professors said so, she was off on her own doing it, and it was just wonderful to hear. Thank you. Matt, in our work in Sri Lanka, there's been a lot of talk about emergence that you use. Could you explain a little what, what emergence means and how that works out? So we work with, with Ricardo and uh, the growth lab, some of them are here in, uh, in Sri Lanka. And uh, the work is with the government trying to think about doing things that are really complex. Uh, like uh, a government that, that, that doesn't know how to diversify but needs to urgently diversify. You know, it, it, I do remember this is the kind of topic where when I was in the World Bank, people would come and say, this is how you diversify. When, when you look at the world and all the countries that have tried to diversify, it's like nobody diversifies, right? Um, so, you know, it, the, the first thing that's great is that you have a, a, you, you have a, a, a bunch of teams that, that recognize they don't know how to do things, and then you come together and you say, well, let's try and do this complex thing. Um, within the literature of complexity, especially looking at the literature on leadership and complexity. So complexity is where you just have a lot of uncertainty. You don't know how to do something. You haven't done it before. 
Um, and so therefore you don't have the capability to do that thing, so you have to kind of work out how to do it. Part of the literature says, well, how do you then lead complexity, right? How do you lead a process of, of, of action? Because usually when you want to talk about leadership or even management, you would talk about kind of determining the route, determining where you want to go, determining how to get there, and then just following that route in a really disciplined way. Well, if you don't know how to get anywhere, that's a really bad leadership strategy. So the strategy here is essentially put people to work, get them doing things, get them creating a lot of noise, um, and get them engaging with each other in a way that they haven't engaged before. Um, and then you kind of rely on, kind of as Ricardo says, a little bit of luck, right? And uh, when you create learning and you create interaction that is new, things tend to emerge. And if you're paying attention and you're stopping often enough to learn about what it is that's emerging, you can grab hold of that thing and you can actually find something that you wouldn't have thought about uh, when you started. So the kinds of things that we see, in, in, and we just follow the PDI process as a way of fostering this emergence, right? Bring a team together of people who haven't worked together before. Have them work in pretty tight iterations. In Sri Lanka, it's two to three weeks at a time. Uh, every time they meet, they identify what they're going to do next. And then when they meet the next time, you say, what did you do? What did you learn? What's next and what are you struggling with? And you find that those check-ins just facilitate a form of uh, finding your luck, right? <laughs> so oftentimes, it's kind of you know making people aware of things that they would have thought were just mundane lessons and they would have just lost over and saying, gee, that's pretty cool. Why don't you go down that direction? So an example from Sri Lanka is uh, one of the team members in a team which we call our team, which is the promotions team. And this is a team that's trying to find investors. And uh, they're trying to find big investors, and they've never kind of done this before. So uh, when they met with us, because we Harvard, they said, well, what we're going to do over the next three months is we're going to develop a study of how to do investment promotions. And so, you know, that doesn't really excite us very much, but we also don't intervene too much in what they do because it needs to be their choice. So we say, that's great, how are you going to do that? So they say, well, we're going to go and do some research into how people do investment promotions, and we're going to write a long paper. And I think they were being asthmatic, right? They were thinking, here's Harvard, and they're going to love it. We're going to do a study for them. <laughs> and so we said, that's great, as long as you do that. So they went away, and they did this research, and they came back, and after a while, one of the things they said was, well, you don't really write a paper about doing investment promotions. You do investment promotions. So they came back after about four weeks, and they were really frustrated because they were saying, well, the thing we learned this, this month is that, you, is that what we want to do is not the right thing to do. But now we don't know what to do because, you know, you've kind of got us in this strange situation. And we had a workshop where we introduced a businessman to come and speak to them. And this businessman started speaking about how he was trying to... Uh, he was trying to attract investors for boat building in Sri Lanka. And usually this guy was fighting with the government, so they knew him very well, but usually he was complaining to them. So at the beginning you could see they were all like, why did you invite this guy? And then after a while, they would, you, you could see these guys who'd been doing a month of research. They started listening to what this guy was saying. And about uh, 30 minutes into the guy's presentation, he said, well, wherever I go, I take this, um, this booklet to tell people why they should come and do boat building in Sri Lanka. And he started showing the booklet. And I was watching this team, and they were sitting talking to each other, and one of the women was getting very animated. And at the end, she went to him and she said, I want your booklet. And she came to me and she said, we're going to make books like this. And two weeks later, they had four pitch books for four sectors, 
and they were presenting them to private sector people and those private sector people were saying yes, no, this is how you make it better. Um, two weeks after that, they presented the pitch book to, they found out that there was a, um, a Chinese delegation in the building and they went and hounded this Chinese delegation and they were not invited to the meeting. And they went and they said, here's our pitch book because we want to get into industry X. Can you tell us how to make it better? Because we've been told that, you, that we need to speak to the private sector. And the guy said, well, here's some ideas. And he said, by the way, I really like your pitch book. And I happen to know people in China who in that industry, would you like us to contact them? <laughs> and literally two days later, she was in email contact with people from the industry. And six weeks later, they kind of in like really formative conversations. Now, that's what you call emergence, right? Because if you said in September to this team, in four or five months' time, you're going to be actually, you're going to know about an industry, you're going to have pitch books for the industry, you're going to be speaking to people, they'd say, what is a pitch book? And it seems like a really kind of a basic thing because people would say, yeah, well, as you describe it, who wouldn't do a pitch book? Well, they wouldn't do a pitch book in September, and now they have them. So that's what you call emergence, and it's being a little bit lucky. And, you know, as they say, luck is where practice meets opportunity. And I like to think that what PEIA is, it's about kind of practice and it's about learning. And then when the opportunity is there, you have capabilities you didn't have. And it's those capabilities that states don't have, right? Because when they're ticking boxes, no one is practicing how to be creative and no one is practicing how to respond when the opportunity arises. And what we're kind of saying is, you need to have the capability to be dynamic and to be adaptive rather than just the ability to tick a box. Thank you. Before we move to Q&A, I want to take on Archon's question and pose it to both of them and see how, how do you see best practice fit within PDIA? Is that an okay articulation? Or not. Or not, exactly. Well, I think best practices fits in well, but it fits in the way that you suggest. It, it doesn't fit in at the beginning. And I think that the thing that I'd say is, you know, the problem in development is oftentimes that best practice drives the conversation. It's a solution-driven approach. It not only drives the conversation, but it's also tied to the money behind the conversation. And it's when you put those things together that you take away all the freedom of people to find their own way. We, we like to say to people, start off defining what your problem is. And then start to look for action and ideas that you can act upon. And that's where we get to calling the design space, where the design space is the, area, the kind of zones where you can find ideas to move. And one of those zones is the current activity you have now, right? Another one of those zones is kind of what we call squeezing the orange, which is the latent, the latent abilities that you have, but you've never squeezed hard enough to find, right? Another one is positive deviance which is within your context, are there any best practices? Are there any people in your context who just have solved this problem? Can you learn from them? And the third one is external, and the fourth one, sorry, is external best practice. So we say that best practice, domestic and outside, are both in that, that space, and you should be looking at them. But we're just trying to say, let's stop the bias towards saying <coughs> we only have two things, what we do now that doesn't work, and what the Germans did that does. Like, 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 look at what the Germans did, think about it, but think about it as one area of opportunity rather than the only area. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, I think <clears throat> we want to make the distinction or, between scholar, scholarship and learning, right? And research can feed into both, right? I think scholarship 
the intentional production of disciplinary, grounded, publishable research is a tiny subset of research. Whereas what we want organizations to have is a learning strategy, where they themselves are experientially engaged in the process of learning. And I think that's really important for two reasons. One, you know, we have a series of mottos and jingles we've developed. And one is, you can't juggle without the struggle, right? If I can juggle, and I can juggle, but I don't have any objects. But, you know, if I can juggle, I can show you how to juggle, right? And I can show you, I can try and teach you how to juggle. But if you never have the balls in your hand, no amount of, so for one thing, we just don't believe that you can acquire the capability without the practice. And hence, you actually need the learning strategy. And the second is, I think it's just an inadequately, it's a false positive model of how governments, of how organizations change their behavior to believe that they're very deeply and strongly influenced by outside research. I think people want it to be homegrown, they want it, and if they're not engaged in it, they won't necessarily believe it. So even if that, um, even if the learning strategy ultimately alives at best practice, that doesn't mean you could have gotten there without the learning strategy where people themselves felt engaged in the process. And because when they came to it, they realized, oh, this is, so this is how we do it, as opposed to this is how they do it, and we're just, so, you know, I play tennis a lot, and there's kind of a right way to hit a forehand, and pretty much every professional tennis player mechanically hits their forehand in that way, but nobody learns to hit that forehand without themselves experientially hitting a lot of forehands. So, and you get feedback from your own experience that's much more effective of your behavior than being told about somebody else's experience. Um, can I say one more thing before we go to Q&A? So two things. One, we made the book free. <laughs> and partly the, we made the book free, and it cost us actually a little money to make the book free. We had to give the publisher money. <laughs> um, as a, they weren't, you know, it's an academic press. They weren't going to give authors much money anyway, but we actually had to give them money. And we've got an online course that accompanies the book. So it kind of more or less walks you through the book. And partly the reason we do this is I'm friends with a man who wrote a very famous and influential book about disruption called Clay Christensen. And I don't know if you've seen his book, Innovator's Dilemma, but if he had a nickel for every time people use the word disruption, he would be half as rich as he is already. <laughs> but it would be a lot of money. Um, but he was talk I was talking to him one day, and he said, you know, I've learned that a book really can't change organizational behavior. It's like, that's pretty striking coming from you. This book's been very influential. And he says, the problem is the book is asynchronous and individualized, the experience of reading a book. So lots of people in an organization, one of them reads the book. Their experience of the book is individualized, and it's not synchronized with other people reading the book. So they read the book over the weekend. They come in Monday morning thinking, boy, my company really should adopt this thing. 20 other people in the room, none of them have read the book. They lose, he loses interest, somebody else reads the book six months later. So, you know, he says for a book to be effective at changing group behavior, it has to be a synchronous experience. People have to do it together, and it has to be a group-based experience. People as a group have to learn in order to change group behavior. So we've partly made the book free, and we've made an online course to accompany it, 
to encourage people to read the book together as groups and actually work through the exercises as groups and to experience the book as groups actually working on common problems. So now any NGO, any government organization, anybody doing any work in development can, as a group, do the book because it's free. Two weeks from now, maybe an online course starts, and you can have a synchronized experience of working through the concepts of the book, working from the big picture concepts right to the workbook exercises where you can work on your own problem. So I think we, in order to make the book have impact on the way people act. We've tried to make it as accessible as possible for the book to be available and integrated into a group-based activity. Great, thank you. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.